I think we're live. Hi. Hey, everybody. Hello, family. You're tuned into The Real Rx, a platform created by five uniquely talented physicians with one main mission, and that's to educate and empower our communities to do and feel better. Here is where we have real talk about trending health topics and your problems or issues in health and even the healthcare system. We'll take you behind the brains of an ophthalmologist, an ER doctor, an OBGYN, a healthcare advocate, and a family doctor to discuss the real things that ail you. Join us for another episode of The Real Rx. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. Um, So uh, we have an interesting and very timely topic to discuss today with regards to depression. Excuse me, we think that it's uh, something that we often encounter as physicians, and it's a very prevalent issue um, for so many people, including specifically our African-American community. Um, But before we get into the nitty gritty, I'd like everyone to just introduce themselves for those that are joining us for the first time. So Dr. Nicole, we'll start with you. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Nicole Rochester. I am a board certified pediatrician, a professional health advocate and the CEO of Your GPS Doc. And my mission is to help patients and their family caregivers navigate the healthcare system. Great, thanks. And Dr. San. Hey, it's Dr. San, board certified gynecologist who uses social media to help mamas navigate through pregnancy, during labor and delivery, and to also help our moms become more balanced in life, learning how to balance work life, mommy life, and just plain old life. Awesome, thank you. Dr. Anika. Hello everybody, I'm Dr. Anika. I am the vision doctor. I help you see things in your life, whether they are tangible things or the ideas inside of you more clearly. Thanks. And Dr. Kim? Hey, everyone. My name is Dr. Kim Brilly. I'm an emergency room physician, and I help you to stay safe, healthy, and more importantly, thrive outside of the doors of the ER. Thank you. And I'm Dr. Felicia Sumner. I'm a board-certified family medicine physician and wellness strategist. I'm dedicated to helping you become well, whole, energized, and loving life. So again, we're uh, happy to join again about this topic. We're chatting about depression, um, mental health in general, but specifically depression for the most part tonight. And we're asking that you join in the conversation. Definitely ask questions, whatever comments you have, please share them, um, and we'd be happy to address them live. And if you think that this this is a topic that is worth sharing um, with those that you love and care about, please share this on your pages. And we are a podcast podcast as well. So please be sure to subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to our podcast. We'd be happy to have you join our podcast family. We're available on all platforms. Um, so just search for The Real Rx. So again, we're chatting about depression today. And it's interesting because specifically in the U.S. population, about 13.2% or so of the U.S. population identifies themselves as African-American, right? And then of those people, over 16% had a diagnosable mental illness just in this past year. And that's over 6.8 million people, 6.8 million African-Americans in this country alone 
are being conventionally diagnosed with some mental health illness. And that's more than the population of Chicago, Houston, and Philadelphia combined. So that's a whole bunch of people. And so this is not a topic that I think um, should be held lightly. I think it's something that we definitely need to address. So certainly, you know, like I said, bring in your questions and we're happy to discuss. Um, I was interested to think, you know, there's a whole a whole slew of types of depression out there, right? Um, there's uh, bipolar depression, there's depression type one, type two, there's postpartum depression, and we encounter them in so many ways. Um, but what I've noticed specifically as a family medicine physician is it's a hard thing to diagnose. Um, and the challenge in many cases is it's because it's a taboo subject for a lot of people. Um, and I was curious to hear kind of your uh, pers perspectives as other colleague physicians. Um, has that been a challenge for you in encountering your patients um, or what kind of, you know, stories can you share uh, considering HIPAA, et cetera, where it has been a challenge for you and patients to, to be able to diagnose that illness and why do you think so? I can start that, um, and I'm not going to even share about one of my patients. Um, I'm going to share about a story that a lot of you are aware of. It was a really sad story, and so it went viral on social media. There was a young 30-something-year-old newscaster who had LASIK surgery. She had some complications after her LASIK surgery that a lot of you are aware of. She had some complications after her LASIK surgery and um, she was having halos, a lot of pain, discomfort, and her vision was not good. And as a result of that, dealing with that over the course of a week or two, she ended up committing suicide. This was a 30-something-year-old lady who had two young children, around three to five years old, married, um, had a great job, presumably a wonderful life but just having her vision compromised in that way from an elective surgery caused her to lose enough hope that she didn't wanna live anymore. And so I wanna highlight that depression can occur in a lot of settings. It's not always just postpartum. It's not always just a loss or a divorce. Sometimes um, it's the loss of a sense that makes you feel less connected to everyone around you. Um, and so I want to make people aware of that if you have family members who've lost vision because of glaucoma, because of macular degeneration, um, because of retinitis pigmentosa, other things like that, then please be cognizant of the fact that they may be truly depressed. Um, and that's something that if their doctors aren't asking the question, because again, sometimes they don't consider the loss of vision as something that'll, that'll start the domino effect of depression, um, then you make sure you're talking to them about it because the last thing I'd want someone to do is suffer in silence because no one is astute enough to, to see that they're going through something, something larger than just the loss of a sense. Yes, that's, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Nika. It's definitely important for us to realize that, um, like I said, there's a huge population of folks that are suffering from this particular um, disease or illness. And so it's not where, you know, you should ever feel alone. And the biggest part of treatment, I think, from my experience is, uh, you know, not being alone by being able to tap into your community for support. 
And if you don't feel like you have a community, I will, I will personally attest that I think therapy works. I have personally been to therapy. I've been to single individual therapy. And um, my therapist recommended that I go to group therapy. And first I was like, I'm not going in there telling all these people how, how what my issues are. But she convinced me to try it and I loved it. I loved it. And I don't, I'm not surprised looking back because I love people in general. And the fact that there were people in there and we were able to all get together and even smile and chuckle about things when we were all going through a really tough patch in our lives kind of cheered me up. It's, it's when they say misery loves company, it's not always a negative thing. Sometimes it's nice to know you're not the only one going through it. And so when you're in a group therapy, there are tons of people going through exactly what you're going through and you can share coping mechanisms. Um, it's nice to feel like you're not alone and to learn from people who are going through the same thing you are, things that help them to cope. And I just want to share one thing and then I'm going to let somebody else talk. But I remember one profound thing that I carry with me to this day and it helps me whenever I get into a funk or something like that. One of the things that our therapist told us was emotions are like the floats in a parade. If you stand there and wait long enough, that emotion will go by and then another emotion will come. And the next emotion may be a, po a hugely positive emotion. So don't get caught on the negative thing, because if you just stand there long enough, it's going to go by and that will pass. And then the next emotion will come along. I love that. That is really insightful. I, I heard something similar that emotion is like energy in motion. Um, so to definitely consider it that way could be very helpful. Thank you. So speaking of therapy, what's interesting too, I um, can attest to this myself um, because even when we were seeking out couples therapy, um, premarital counseling, things like that, some of my friends or family were like, why do you need to see a therapist? I think that in the black community in particular, there seems to be a lot of negative stigma associated to seeing therapists. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why, but could you, any of you provide insight as to why you think that's such a problem? And we'd love to hear your comments from our viewers and listeners. What do you think, you know, is the reason why so many of us don't seek out therapy when we may need it? I can start the conversation about that. I mean, I, I think it's multifactorial. I think, you know, in the Black community, there is a lot of mistrust and we talked about this on other episodes. There's a lot of mistrust in general of the medical community um, because of, you know, things that have happened um, in the past. And also I think, you know, not to say that every person of color is um, Christian because I don't want to imply that at all, but certainly within the Christian faith, there's, there's just this, this idea that, you know, God will fix it. And, um, and I can only speak to that. There may be, they, there may be similar, opinions and other religions, but, you know, we erroneously, I think, um, assume or we make a decision that you either need to go to therapy or you need to pray about it. And I think that's a huge problem in the Black community. And I think that some pastors, unfortunately, have, um, you know, they've continued that thinking and they have shared that thinking with members of their congregation, almost making people feel like they are, um, you know, cheating on God, so to speak, if you go and get a therapist. And so I really think, unfortunately, that that has hindered um, progress in our community. And, you know, we need therapy probably more than anybody else. So um, I, as, as the other ladies have shared, I've had therapy. I've had couples therapy. I've had individual therapy. I love it. 
I have, it's been a while. I probably need to go back, <laughs> but therapy is great. Thanks for sharing that, Dr. Nicole. Um, Will, one of our viewers said that mainly the stigma and embarrassment, um, certainly that may have, you know, that certainly may be an issue very much associated with the problem. And Dr. Nika mentioned, just pray, you know, your faith is lacking, all those suggestions. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, as myself, I'm a, I'm a Christian woman and I've seen it so many times that, you know, they'll, they'll, some, some churches will be happy to pray the devil out of you before they think that, you know, you might actually need some therapy or pharmaceutical treatment. So that'll be a talk for another day. <laughs> I wanted to jump on and, and say something about that too. I just like to echo, I too have had therapy, um, not couples therapy, um, but when I was about to start medical school, I went through like a year of hell to say the very least. Like my father passed away. I had gone through a lot of other family issues. I was moving to a whole different country to go to medical school. It was really overwhelming. So that year um, or the few months before I started medical school, I ended up going into therapy um, and it helped me tremendously. That was amazing. But some of the things that some of my family members said is like, oh, so I'm glad you're acknowledging that you're crazy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it seems like if you say that you're going to therapy, people automatically think that you're, you're crazy or you need something. And I'm like, well, no, I made a choice to go to a Christian counselor. I specifically sought him out um, because he was Christian and I didn't want to be on medications or I, that's another thing that I think a lot of people say is like all therapists will put you on medications and do all these things. I'm like, no, I don't need medicine. I need to learn how to cope with all the stuff that I'm going through and no one else can help me. But, you know, I think a therapist, um, I think another thing that can be deterring for people is that it may be very difficult um, for them to, depending on the area that they're in, to find someone that looks like them. Mm -hmm. So when I went to therapy, I was back home in Wisconsin and y'all know, everybody has a stigma about Wisconsin. They say, so you don't have a black person from there. <laughs> but so my counselor was a white man, but at first I felt uncomfortable, but then I realized I got past the, you know, his race and his gender and was really using the resources that he gave me. So I'm not saying that you need to just automatically just get whoever you need to, or you can get, but try to think outside of the box on what your therapist looks like. And sometimes it is just best if you find someone of color um, or someone that has your same sexual orientation to help you because you feel like they'll be able to identify you more. Uh, with you more. But there's so many more resources now, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later, but I'll throw a couple out there. Um, Talkspace is something um, that you can download. It's an app. And you can literally talk to a therapist 24-7, 365, whether it's via text, phone call, video chat. And so there's now more accessible ways for people to get the help that they need. So I wish I had that, you know, nine, almost 10 years ago when I was going through what I was going through. But those probably will be some of the barriers that people may feel because I felt them when I was going through my um, search for a therapist and counseling. Kim, I want to say 
Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Sam. No, no, no. I was just about to say, I think another barrier that um, people have, period, um, is we feel like we're too busy and we don't prioritize it. And um, kind of like what Kim said, I had a, you know, a rough, rough time when I was in um, medical school. I also lost um, my brother to mm -hmm. a car accident. So I lost my brother. And then that very same year I was getting married and that very same year I didn't pass my boards and it was a whole lot. And I didn't realize that I was really battling with depression. And it wasn't until this, I was on a rotation that this resident, she came up to me and she was just like, um, what's wrong? And I was like, oh, nothing's wrong with me. And she was, and she took me to dinner and this woman did not know me. She just randomly came up to me and <clears throat> she was a young black woman and she was closing out the clinic herself by herself. And I stayed with her. I didn't know her, but it was kind of like a protection thing. I was like, I'm not letting her stay in this dark clinic with these patients by herself. So I just kind of sat in the corner and waited for her. And afterwards, she was like, I'm just going to take you out to dinner. And we were just sitting there just having dinner. And all of a sudden, she was just like, what's wrong with you? Tell me what's wrong. And I'm looking at her like, oh, nothing's wrong. I'm fine. And she just kept asking. And finally, I just like broke down in the middle of this restaurant. I was just like, I'm angry with God. He killed, you know, I didn't say he killed my brother, but my brother was killed in a car accident at 20 years old. And I was just like shook by this. And I'm like, I didn't pass my boards. You know, I'm trying to plan this wedding. It's like a whole lot was going on. And she was just like, well, you need to talk to somebody about it. I was like, I ain't got time. I was like, I'm in medical school, I'm trying to get my rotations. I'm trying to plan a wedding. I'm trying to take care of my mom because, you know, my mom was of course grieving, my dad was grieving. And so I was doing so much and I feel that we don't make mental health a priority. We just don't make it a priority at all. We're just like, oh, I'll take care of it later. So I definitely think that that's an issue with mental health um, diseases like you know depression. We just don't make it a priority. And I, the way that I get through to my patients is mental health needs treatment like diabetes. And a diabetic, you know, a type one diabetic cannot live without insulin. They physically cannot live. So I'm like, if you have a mental disease, you can't live without your therapy. Or if you need medication, you can't live without your medication. And I think once I put it on the same level as something as tangible or, you know, easy to grasp as diabetes, they make it more of a priority because they're like, oh yeah, you're right. I do need insulin for diabetes. So why wouldn't I need Zoloft from a depression? So I definitely think that's the issue. We just don't prioritize it at all. Uh we're talking a lot about depression. There are other mental illnesses that are very, very common, um, one of which um, is anxiety. And a lot of times anxiety and depression can go hand in hand and the anxiety can make your provider sometimes think you have a different type of depression than you, act, than you actually have. Um, but anxiety is pretty common. As I as I start to look at patients' histories a lot more closely now, I'm seeing it listed a lot more. I think it's getting a lot more attention and I think that's a good thing. Um, but it can absolutely manifest as something physical. Um, me personally, I went through a lot of things. I lost two parents, um, went through an ugly divorce and I lost my parents about six weeks apart. And I didn't know what it was, but my chest would get tight. And I remember, I, I remember always feeling that. And I was never afraid I was having a heart attack, but I didn't think I was anxious. Um, but I could feel my chest getting tight. And now, now that I know the signs, um, I'm able to feel that sensation coming on and, and just take a break and say, okay, hold up now, hold up, let's regroup. 
Um, but it's nice to know if you have physical signs that manifest too, so that number one, you don't worry that this is something more serious. And number two, you can kind of back yourself out of that corner you're going into. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say too, yeah, when I was going through kind of everything, when I was going through, I felt heaviness in my chest. Mm-hmm. And if I wasn't, you know, a young 25 something year old female, I would think I was having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just, just like as, as we learned in medical school, it felt like pressure. Like my heart literally was hurting. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like to me. But in the ER, a lot of times I see patients come in, they feel like their heart's racing. Um, they say a lot of chest, like a lot of anxious people or people who I believe have anxiety um, feel like their heart is racing. Um, there was a person that I saw not too long ago who just had back pain and chest pain and a lot of times depression and I think Dr. Felicia can agree with this can um, depression or anxiety or other mental health issues can mask itself as other medical issues like low back pain like we you know oh we just think there's something wrong with your back no worries and you know this keeps happening to you and we keep giving you all the appropriate medicines you're doing everything appropriately but you keep coming back because you have that issue but okay so what's really going on deep inside um also too it's hard to um, diagnose depression and other mental health issues because it can uh, or some medical issues can cause depression like having your thyroid out of whack for example. Um, and that's something that I'm always kind of asking my patients when they come in the ER for, you know, depressive symptoms, you know, do you have any thyroid issues that you know about? And sometimes just screening them in the ER will be like, well, maybe it's this, like maybe it's your thyroid. Maybe if we, you know, work with you to get to a primary physician, like a Dr. Felicia, then we can, you know, see if this will work itself out and along with the therapy and the counseling that you need as well. So there, it's so multifaceted. And I, and I remember just seeing someone just the other day, um, like I said, with the low back pain, but she was like crying and I'm like, what's wrong? And she just started telling me all of these things. And it's just like, I knew it wasn't really her back. I knew it was, you know, everything she was going through in her head and in real life and with her kids, et cetera, and so forth. So it's, it's difficult even for us physicians, but if we work together, then we usually hopefully can, can, can help people. Well, I can definitely say, and um, Felicia, she's a DO um, also, but we yeah. learn about that. Like we literally learn how depression, anxiety, um, different things can manifest in your body. Like it really can manifest in your body. Like back, like she said, back pain, neck pain, certain headaches when you have tension, anxiety, all of that really does manifest in your body. And, you know, I, I still love doing um, my osteopathic manipulations, but I've released trigger points. I have done um, muscle um, energy on patients and it really is treating what the stress and what depression has done to them. Now, not to say that doing the muscle energy and trigger points is curing the um, the depression itself, but because how the depression is actually manifesting in their body is basically treating some of those symptoms because it absolutely can present in your shoulders, in your back, in your head, in your occipital lobe um, muscles, all of those. So that was a really good point to bring up. Um, Kim, that sometimes it's just not a feel like a mental feeling. It's your body physically 
can actually, um, you know, manifest things like anxiety and depression. It really can. See it all the time. We can't hear you. Can't hear you. <laughs> well, while, while Dr. Felicia is getting her sound together, I just want to chime in because I, um, you know, one of the things that I'm working through and I'm doing it publicly on social media is this, my, my type A personality, which I'm sure probably every lady on this, on this broadcast, and I'm sure many of you watching can attest to, but, you know, just type A perfectionism, control freak. And, and so I honestly am just realizing, and I'm 49, I'm just gonna go ahead and put it out there. I'm 49. I am just like realizing, girl. <laughs> thank like you. But I am just realizing that I have anxiety and I, I, I didn't, I never even realized it. And when you all talked about the, um, the physical manifestations, you know, some, some of you watching may know that a year ago I had, I mean, severe, severe, severe pain, like crippling to the point where I could barely move. And it was all in my neck and through a whole series of doctor's appointments and all kinds of other tests. Yes. I had a bulging disc in my neck, but they had, I had all kinds of, arthritic changes that somebody my age really shouldn't have. And what we discovered is I basically was spending most of my life like this. And that's that tension, that stress, that anxiety. And my husband has been pointing it out for years, telling me that I hold my shoulders up and I would just blow it off or, you know, tell him to mind his business. But I'm, I, years later, I'm realizing that that was how I was manifesting my stress and my, um, and my anxiety. And also what you all described about that, that chest heaviness. I remember after, like during my caregiving um, days with my dad or years with my dad, you know, it was extremely, extremely stressful. And it wasn't until after he passed away that I think I, it's almost like I just had a, like a release. And I remember going to the doctor because for weeks I just kept feeling like I couldn't take in a deep breath. And it was like, I had that heaviness and I don't have asthma, but my daughters have asthma. So I was using their inhalers. That wasn't working. Y'all know how we doctors are. <laughs> I know. But I mean, oh, it, felt plastic like, it felt like an asthma attack, so to speak. So I was like, let me just use their albuterol. Where I was using albuterol, it was not helping. And I just, I got to the point where I just, like I was literally like taking these shallow breaths, went to the doctor, just knowing something was wrong. He did an x-ray. Um, did a peak flow, everything was normal. And I'll be honest, I, he never told me, he basically just said everything's normal. And I think he may have even put me on prednisone. But days later, I started to realize that was all stress and anxiety. So I'm, I guess my point is that those of us who are going, 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 like you all have said, type A, we don't even stop to listen to our own bodies. And I mean, it's now when I think back, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been, I've been anxious like for many, many years and I just blew it off or I, I labeled it as that's just my drive. That's my ambition. But no, that was anxiety. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Dr. Nicole. Um, along those same lines, we're getting a couple questions with regards to certain symptoms of depression, even for perfectionists, how do you identify it before you end up like me? I figured it out when I just started bawling in the parking lot of work and couldn't get out of my car. Um, how do you recognize things before they get that bad? Um, there are a number of particular uh, cardinal symptoms is what we call them that we often use as physicians to diagnose depression. 
There's a particular mnemonic that most of us learn in medical school and residency called SIGECAPS, S-I-G-E-C-A-P-S. Um, and often if you, you know, hit a certain amount of those criteria, then we can usually say that you're diagnosed with depression, that you're dealing with depression. So S stands for sleep. So either you're sleeping too much or you can't sleep. So you have insomnia. I is for interest. So you've lost interest in a lot of things that you typically are able to enjoy. Um, C or sorry, G is for guilt. So you are having, you know, excessive guilt about things that isn't typically normal. Um, e is energy. So a lack of energy. C is cognition or concentration. So you're having difficulty focusing on things when usually that's not a problem. A is appetite. So typically a lack of appetite, but for some people it may mean that you're binge eating or overeating. Um, P is for, I forget what P is for, psychomotor. So if you've got like agitation, um, particularly like in your muscles, which is, uh, you know, a manifestation for some people or that you're moving slower than usual. And S is for suicidal thoughts. So those are some of the things that we, you know, try to keep in mind as doctors when we're diagnosing depression. And if you're noticing some of those things, like you're much more tired than usual, or you're blaming yourself for everything and, you know, things like that. And that's not a typical behavior for you that could be indeed a manifestation of depression. One thing that um, I learned and I was shocked, I made it all the way through medical school and into my mid forties and never knew this. Having, when someone says, asks you, are you suicidal? It does not only mean, do you plan to hurt yourself? Do you want to hurt yourself? Being suicidal can also be, you don't care if you live or not. That's considered suicidal ideation. So if you've ever kind of thought to yourself or said out loud, if I died, it would be okay. And that is a suicidal ideation. And it is a sign that you probably need to see someone uh, and at least talk to someone whether or not you consider getting on medication. And one thing I want to add, this is going to show my age even further. And I'd love for you to drop a word in the comments if you remember this movie. Does anybody remember One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Mm-hmm. I honestly believe that that planted a seed in society that Number one, it's not okay to say you have issues because you'll be labeled as crazy and people will take, use all of these strange research-based treatments on you um, that may harm you. And so I think that that really planted some of that distrust that society has with admitting that they have issues and seeking help for it. Along those lines, too, about um, planting seeds in people's minds and almost demonizing or villainizing people, like physicians that are going through mm-hmm. um, mental health issues are villainized like all the time because when we, and if you guys didn't know this in the audience who are non-physicians, we are asked every time we renew a license if we are currently under any psychiatric treatment for whatever reason. And there's so many, first of all, physicians, we're humans just like everyone else. We're not just some superpower, super being because we have MD or DO after our name. Um, And we've gone through years of medical school, but it disincentivizes um, physicians to going to getting the help that they need because, um, you know, you have to report this and a lot of times, 
I've, I've heard of even people's license getting taken away because they're under treatment for for psychiatric disorder. And it could be because of things that we're talking about. Fortunately, a family member passed away or divorce or, you know, the stress at work because, you know, you're a surgeon and you're up at five o'clock in the morning and getting home at 11 o'clock at night and you're not able to do the things that you want to do. So when we actually recognize some of the things that are going on within ourselves, we're then punished for um, seeking the help that we need. So a lot of times, and not to spill the beans on people, but a lot of times physicians will go use pseudonyms and then get treatment from um, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist um, so that they can protect them licensed because it's like, I'm not suicidal, homicidal, or anything else. I realize that I need some help, and that's the only way I can go about it without being retaliated against. And that's not every state that does that. I'm not actually sure which state um, does that, but there was a news article that I read not too long ago where that happened to another um, colleague of mine. She got her medical license taken away because she sought psychiatric care because she absolutely needed it. So. It's, it's sad how, you know, society tells us to be strong and do this and do that. And now I feel like more so in the last two or three years, it's this wave of self-care and get therapy and all of these other things. But it's like the system has been stacked against some profession so high for so long. It's hard for us to participate as well. So very true. Not to rain on the parade. Almost. <laughs> Just saying. Felicia. We can't hear you, Felicia. <laughs> is that better? Yes. 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 Oh, this okay. um, Adrian, that, thank you, Dr. Kim. That's so true. Adrian said that it's, you know, a similar issue if you have security clearance, um, that you have mm. to cross those types of issues, which I wasn't fully aware of. Um, so My sister. Hey, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Dr. San, I'm going to put you on the stand a little bit. With regards to postpartum depression specifically, um, I, I've had, you know, a number of friends who I had to kind of slap them silly a little bit after their pregnancy when they were dealing with postpartum depression, but were either in denial um, or, you know, were not diagnosed effectively. I understand that typically OBGYN screen for that afterwards. So um, what's been your experience with that? Are most people picked up when they have postpartum depression? So things have actually changed. Um, as far as um, I know um, all moms, y'all probably remember that your postpartum visit, the first time that you see a physician after you have a baby, um, unless you had a C-section, we see you a little bit earlier, is about six weeks. After six weeks, we tell you to come in to do your whole postpartum check just to make sure things are, um, what you call it, healing appropriately. Well, we have found that we have missed a lot of postpartum depression because we're waiting six weeks. Because postpartum depression in a woman who doesn't have the history of any depression at all usually manifests itself about at week two. The first two weeks, if a woman um, is feeling depressed or find herself crying a little bit more and things like that, we call it postpartum blues. Postpartum blues comes about day two, three. That's when you leave the hospital and you realize I got to take this baby home with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, what? I don't get a nurse? That's how I felt. I was like, so nobody coming home with me. It's just, <laughs> baby not going to make it. 
Um, (laughs) like the first, um, like the first two to three days after that, that's when, you know, you start to have the blues because it's very overwhelming and your hormones that were really high, your progesterone and estrogen are now bottoming out. So it's really like a shock on your body. So you have this new little human, you have this new life that you have to um, make, and then you may have other children that you also have to take care of. So it's a lot. So in the first two weeks, it's kind of like, we call it an adjustment phase for a woman who doesn't have any history of depression is usually postpartum blues at the point of about week two you realize okay this baby does have to stay with me I cannot send it home they didn't give me a receipt I'm gonna have to make it work that usually happens around week two so women start to kind of like you know um, feel better and adjust but if it persists after two weeks then that's when we start calling it postpartum depression um, and again it's a whole lot of factors that can go into this the biggest one is your hormone shift you, your hormones is what were, was keeping this baby inside of your womb, presenting, preventing you from going into preterm labor and things like that. So now these hormones are gone. You have a complete fluid shift. Your physiology is completely changing. It's a lot of that's going on physically with your body. And then another thing that I tell women is your environment change. Your environment factors plays a huge part into it. And I I don't want to blame it on social media. I don't want to blame it on TV. But when you look at social media and you see your girlfriends or celebrities or random people who have these babies, they're like, oh, my gosh, she already skinny. Mm. You're like, well, why her Why her wife looks so fabulous? Well, she got a chef. You know, look at her house. Her house is so clean. And that's all for the gram. But they don't realize that. So they feel like, oh, God, my life is a complete mess. And then another environmental factor is this lovely man who got you pregnant or, you know, a woman, if you're in a same sex um, relationship and things like that. And in your mind, you're like, they're going to be so helpful. It's going to be so great. And you realize they're going back to work. And so now you're home by yourself with a baby. Um, or you realize that, you know, with men, one thing that I have learned is they, they kind of like don't read your mind. And so in my mind, my, my husband's name is Jason. I would be thinking to myself, like, why he ain't doing this? It only makes sense to do this. And he's just sitting there waiting, like, well, why she ain't telling me to do nothing? So it's just like, (laughs) I'm mad at him. He looking at me like, oh, she got this. She's doing so good. She's doing amazing. So I tell women, like, ask your partner. Like, ask your partner. I need help. They're not trying to not be unhelpful. It's just that they don't know how to help you. And so you have to ask that. So environmental factors is a big, huge part of it. But, you know, the numbers, you know, I know some people like to work with numbers. 10 to 20% of um, women will develop postpartum depression. 10 to 20 and when, and that's women who don't have any history of depression women who have a history of a mental disease um one being depression y'all have a 46 chance 46 percent chance of developing postpartum depression and if they are on medications and they stop their medications they have a increased risk of developing postpartum psychosis and that's when you're hearing things. That's when you're thinking about, you know, doing harm to yourself, doing harm to the baby. And so I always tell my mom, so now the guidelines have actually changed. We no longer wait six weeks. We're now getting people in our office at week two. We're like, week two, come in here because this is when the funk starts hit the fan. Or, you know, of course, if you start to feel it a little bit earlier, then come in earlier. But at week two, we do the whole screening with them. I tell them to bring in someone with them. I'm big on advocates. I'm like, bring your husband because you can look me dead in my face and lie. Be like, no, I'm fine. And the husband, the mom, the cousin, they'll look at me and be like, she's a lie. They're like, she cry every day. 
She's not coming out her room. Mm -hmm. She's talking crazy. She's not saying, you know, like she's not herself. So bring someone with you. So they, cause they might see what you don't see, or they're going to talk about what you're trying to hide. But mm -hmm. postpartum depression, um, it can get really bad. It is moms who committed suicide um, just because they're getting overwhelmed and they're not being treated. Um, and postpartum depression can actually manifest up to one year after having a baby. So you might do well for a while, and then at month six, you know, here you are. Then you'll do well for a while, and month eight, here it is. So it's really a year that you can actually develop postpartum depression. You can, and it's okay. Therapy is wonderful for treatment. Medications, we have safe medications for moms that are actually breastfeeding. We have ways to treat it, but you have to reach out to your OBGYN. And as OBGYNs, we have to be more diligent on asking the correct questions. We definitely, definitely have to do a better job with that. We're trying. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sam. That is so important. And you touched on um, something that Dr. Kim had alluded to earlier as well, um, that, you know, especially with postpartum depression, there are certainly some hormonal um, fluctuations and imbalances that could be playing a significant role. Um, Dr. Kimberly had mentioned how your thyroid could cause depression if it's um, underactive. Other things that maybe um, your doctor may or may not be checking, if you are someone you know is diagnosed with depression, checking a vitamin D level, vitamin D deficiency has been very much associated with depression. If you're low in magnesium, that can cause depression. Um, there are some medications that cause depression, uh, what's called beta blockers, which are used for blood pressure. A lot of cholesterol medicines can cause depression. So um, those are things also worth exploring. There are a lot of reasons that depression can manifest. And in the majority of cases, it can be treated very effectively. And in a lot of cases, even reversed once you figure out the cause, whether that's your stress situation, your environment, or some other um, entity. Um, we are probably, we're running out of time as we always do. Uh, we're so appreciative of all the comments, questions. If we didn't get to address it live, we'll definitely address it in the chat. So please feel free. Um, again, we're so grateful to be able to chat with you guys as always. Um, I wanted to ask if any of you lovely ladies have any departing uh, thoughts. Yeah, I'll say something. So... I think I see a lot of people when they are in crisis, um, a lot of the times the, my most common interaction uh, with patients that do have a mental illness or may have a mental illness is when they are in crisis. And a lot of times um, they come because they have suicidal thoughts or homicidal thoughts or um, they're you know in the middle of a psychosis or a manic episode. Um, so I just want to say, don't be afraid to get the help that you need. If, if you literally cannot think about doing anything else, um, you know, if you can't get a therapist, if you can't talk to anybody, always feel free to walk through the doors of an emergency room because, um, we are there to help make sure that you're okay. And then all of this too, we, we try our best to get you the resources that you need. So, Use us as a resource if you are in crisis, if you have nowhere else to turn, 
that is really why I went to emergency medicine. I want to be the safety net for people. I want to take care of people that they feel like they have nowhere else to go. So I want to say that too. Um, I noticed in the comment section that a few people were plugging some resources. So thank you to our viewers, our live viewers that are um, watching and tuning in and sharing some resources with people. Um, there was a few comments that uh, made me a little bit worried, but I think some people um, commented um, on that person's post and just wanna make sure that people reach out to different resources um, that we have posted. And um, of course too, if you or someone you love, um, you're worried about them um, harming themselves or harming someone else, or you just need someone to talk to, there's always a suicide hotline that's open 24 seven, 365. So if you can't get to anyone and you don't feel comfortable going to the emergency room, um, you have a phone and you can reach um, the suicide hotline. That's another resource for you. But um, I think I speak for all of us not to take the whole conversation, but we really wanted to have this discussion because again, y'all know, we like to talk about stuff that is kind of taboo and people um, need to hear it from people that look like us. So um, hopefully this conversation will change the stigma of mental health in our homes and our churches and our families so that people that desperately need um, help can go ahead and get the resources that they need. And um, so, yeah, I just I hope that that was gained in our conversation. So. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Kim. And the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. So if you or someone you know has uh, any manifestations of um, thoughts of wanting to hurt themselves or someone else, um, please, please have that number readily available. As you hear from all of us, uh, we've all dealt with this to some extent. And so this is not a um, out of the box, out of the wall diagnosis or illness. Uh, very much ordinary people deal with depression and even the extraordinary people deal with depression. Um, so it's not something that you should ever suffer with alone. We're asking that if you are concerned, please speak with your doctor, speak with your therapist. Um, we want you to live your best life because you deserve to do that. So whatever yourself, us, your community can do to help you get there, that's what we're here for. Um, but thank you so much again for all of you for tuning in. Again, you're tuned into The Real Rx, and we're happy to be here. We're here every Tuesday night at 8, 8 p.m. Eastern Live, and you can also catch the replay on all of our podcast platforms. You guys have a great night. Bye. Bye. Bye.